Welcome to another episode of Autism Annex. I'm your host, John Andrew Slominski. On today's episode, we tackle the topic of transitions, and we're going to begin this episode slightly differently than we often do. Take a moment to think of what constitutes a transition in your life. Perhaps you'll come up with the impactful things like moving into your first home or starting a new job, or maybe even smaller events like the commute from home to work. If you're like me during this little exercise, you'll likely find that you are in transition mode dozens of times, or even hundreds of times, every single day. While transitions are commonplace in everyday life, they can also pose some serious challenges to people with autism and other developmental disabilities. Here to talk with us more about transitions is my guest Ruth Ayers, a public school teacher, education consultant, and an expert whose research focuses on comprehensive sexuality education for students with intellectual disabilities and autism. Ruth, welcome to Autism Annex. I'm so glad you could join us today for this very interesting topic of conversation. Would you begin by filling listeners in on your background and maybe some of the priorities that have led you to your particular area of specialty? Well, thank you. My name is Ruth Ayers, and I live just right outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. My interest in being on the podcast is quite varied. Um, I grew up and have a younger sister who has um, intellectual disabilities, and she does not communicate verbally. And so I saw, you know, I was involved with her growing up. And then I've also been a special education teacher for... um, about 23 years in Arkansas. Um, I've worked at Easter Seals, Arkansas as a special ed consultant and um, helped implement a lot of the STAR curriculum um, in schools throughout Arkansas. And then I've also done some consulting with STAR, autism support. But um, another major factor is that I have two children that both have disabilities. My oldest um, is 17 um, and he has cerebral palsy and learning disabilities and a TBI. And then my younger child is a girl and she just turned 15 and she has um, autism. um, She is nonverbal and she has um, intellectual disabilities. So it's like all parts of my life just surround (laughs) making sure we have appropriate resources and instructional materials for individuals that have autism and other developmental disabilities. With your experience, both professional and personal, going so deep and in so many different directions. Yes, you are, I think, uniquely positioned to um, provide some some kind of insight into some of these perspectives. And I wonder if we could start actually with some of your research. So your research focuses on uh, comprehensive sexuality education for students, uh, oftentimes with autism and sometimes other intellectual disabilities. How would you define that for those of us who are maybe hearing that term for the first time? What does a comprehensive sexuality education look like? 
Yes, sure. So, um, you know, when we talk about sex education for anybody, oftentimes people think that is just um, teaching about sexual intercourse or just talking about babies or or where they come from and just talking about sexually transmitted diseases. When really, if we look at um, the evidence-based practices for what should be included in comprehensive sexuality education, we look to um, the sexuality education and information Center of the United States, and they provide guidelines for what all is included in comprehensive sexuality education. And also there's national sexuality education standards. Most people don't know about those. So that's some great information to know. Just like English or math, there's um, in the United States, we have K through 12 um, sexuality education standards. And so it gives specific um, information that um, is recommended that all kids K through 12 learn. We find, though, that a lot of states don't have comprehensive sexuality education that's mandated. And even if they do, like where I live in Arkansas, it's not mandated mandated that K through 12 students have sexuality education. And if they do get it, it's usually not comprehensive. It might just talk about abstinence um, or protection or things like that. It's not comprehensive in looking at one's whole self. And in particular, I went to a Council of Exceptional Children conference in San Diego. And I gave a um, quick poster session on just a small research project I did. And I had so many people from all over the United States, parents and educators that said, we need to know more. And I was struck by how many of those people were from states that do mandate sexuality education, but it still doesn't get to our students that have autism and developmental disabilities and intellectual disabilities. And so that's so important for everybody. All of us need that. But when we look specifically at our kids that have these different disabilities, um, you know, just that systematic denial of them even having um, access to that. If they are included in some of the information, sometimes it's not adapted or modified in a way that they can completely understand it. And we just really have to look at that. And we have to help people know that comprehensive sexuality education is everything from learning about personal care to about changes in your body as you go through puberty, about how to have healthy relationships from friendships on into romantic relationships. And it's also about things that are sometimes tricky to understand, like personal boundaries, what feels safe and not safe to someone. And so there's lots of um, some of those things that aren't as concrete as it would be helpful for teaching them. It's important that we look at at sexuality education, not as just like a one-time instruction lesson, but that it's something that should um, start when the kids are really young, um, as long as it's developmentally appropriate, and go all the way through adulthood, really. You mentioned that even in the states where a comprehensive sexuality curriculum is mandated by law, that those programs are often not reaching or not serving um, the students who have intellectual disabilities, including autism. What does the research have to say about this? And where are the roadblocks in delivering that important education to the students who really need it and can benefit from it? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So what we do have research that helps us answer that question. It, it, it has uncovered through doing surveys and interviews with parents and educators. Um, it showed us that for the most part, parents and educators do think providing sexuality education is important to the students, but then there's a drastic drop between the percent of parents and educators that feel it's important to the the number or percent that actually provide it. And the reason for that is barriers. We have, we have barriers that exist um, for even those of us that, that want to provide that. I know you know, as a professional, I have given um, talks on sexuality education and how they teach it to like a room full of like 300 people. But then when I sat down to have a conversation with my son about a topic um, that I'd not talked to him about before, all of a sudden I realized I didn't know what to say to him because it felt so different when I was talking to my own child. And I had to like use some of the resources I tell other people about and, you know, sit with him and read alongside with like a book that's written on a third grade level that we can read together. And then I didn't have to have that stress of, oh my gosh, as a parent, what if I say the wrong thing? I could read the book that I had already read and I knew was appropriate. And then I didn't have to stumble over, I might mess this up <laughs> when I'm talking to my own child. So, but we see, we see those barriers where parents and educators first um, might not know what is important to teach and how to teach it. So even though we have folks that believe that it's important, then they struggle with like, how do I know what I should teach? And then if I know what I should teach, how am I going to teach it? to have it be effective um, for my students that have various disabilities. Um, another thing is, is that, you know, unfortunately there's still lots of discrimination towards people with disabilities. And so often, um, sometimes, um, it's probably more often than I'd like to, to think about, but I think often um, people without disabilities see folks with disabilities as people who might not have a sexual life or not have sexual feelings or might not be interested in getting married or having relationships or having children. And so, um, and then often we also see that, you know, there's pretty much a lens of heterosexuality placed on so many things that, um, you know, we do have folks with disabilities that aren't heterosexual and, and um, so we have to really be open and, and look at all the different needs that um, all of the individuals we work with have. And, you know, I think it's definitely one of those things where it's not a one size fits all type of approach with your instruction or the curriculum you use, but really looking at like, um, why is it important to teach? What is important to teach? And that's where we can use the guidelines and the sexuality education standards to help guide us, but then individualize it to help students that have autism or intellectual disabilities by using things like visual supports, using things like routine instruction, using things like um, um, 
video modeling about how to have a social appropriate conversation with someone. And I, I think that's where some of the dis disconnect comes in is maybe even the language of sex education or sexuality education creates a barrier because people think of it as just one dimensional instead of this broad range of topics, even about having an appropriate conversation and social skills. So if you were speaking with a non-expert in the field, but someone nonetheless who is interested in learning more about comprehensive sexuality education, what sorts of resources would you be recommending to them? And how would you advise them to get started down this path? Yeah, I think I've learned a lot about that from just having conversations with other parents and having conversations with um, people who are persons with disabilities. And um, the thing that that has stood out as most important to start with is the concepts of public versus private. And so you take like the five-year-old child who all through elementary school and preschool, it was okay to hug your teacher. And so there was always hugs in the classroom. And then all of a sudden at high school, you're not supposed to hug the teacher. And then all of a sudden there's issues with people feeling um, uncomfortable and this has been okay all of their lives until all of a sudden they're in a setting where it's not okay. And no one has thought ahead of time, like, hey, let's look at that next step of life. Maybe we're in middle school now and there's still hugs that are appropriate between the teacher and students, but at the high school, we know that's not okay. And that's something that is not expected and not something that's common. So we need to think ahead and think, what is that next step? What's that next setting? What's that next situation that we need to prepare the student for? And if it is something like you don't hug the teacher, then we need to teach those skills. So if I understand you correctly, you're advocating for much earlier planning in the sort of transition processes such that uh, some of these activities can be proactive rather than being reactive um, since the reactivity is, is clearly not the most successful strategy. Yeah, definitely not. And it's interesting because so often, you know, that word transition um, most people just jump to middle school, high school, post-secondary, when really, it really starts, like when they're in young kids, we, it's that, that keep looking forward, what's going to be next, what, what do we need to help prepare our kids for? Um, one of the, the parents that I was talking to recently, in some research interviews I was doing, made an excellent point, and I hadn't really thought about it using these exact words before, but he was like, um, he had a, the great point with sexuality education. It's like, how can we separate sexuality education from anything in our child's life? Sexuality education is part of um, the changes that my child will go through. Sexuality education is a part of how my child feels about herself. Sexuality education is part of my child determining what she wants to wear and how she wants her hair cut and how she wants to present herself. Sexuality education is a part of, um, you know, having your first period. It's about learning about 
once you're going through puberty, you're going to smell and you need to use deodorant. And, you know, whether or not you are from a culture that you shave your legs or you don't shave your legs or whatever, you know, there's lots of these different things where, um, and sexuality relationship is part of her developing relationships, both with family members, friends, and potential people that she might have romantic relationships with in the future. So he just, he made a point to, I guess the way he expressed it just really um, was a different way for me to look at it, where if you help your child learn about change and that change is a part of life then that makes learning about some of these more difficult concepts or maybe challenging concepts maybe not easy but it's just part of what happens in your life is change and that that those links he made to all the different parts of her life really struck me because that was to me a way to point that sexuality education really is a part of self-determination. It really is a part of self-advocacy. It really is a part of self-awareness. And all those things tied together in this bigger concept we call transition. If you're just joining us, my guest has been Ruth Ayers, and you've heard excerpts from our conversation on sexuality education for young people with autism and other intellectual disabilities. Ruth, you've tied all of these topics up so neatly under the umbrella of transitions that this seems like a really intuitively great final note. And I want to thank you for bringing the topic of sexuality education to our listeners on Autism Annex. Thank you, Ruth. Okay, thank you. And to you, Autism Annex listeners, thanks as always for tuning in. If you're eager for more of the podcast, we will be back next month in an episode devoted entirely to the topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion in special education and beyond. Of course, you can always find more content by visiting us at starautismsupport.com and clicking on newsletter. This month's newsletter offers more perspectives on transitions of all shapes and sizes. Join us there and subscribe for all the latest updates. Autism Annex was developed by Star Autism Support. Katya Mirjan does work behind the scenes, and Sheila McGee provides consultation. I'm your host, engineer, and producer, John Andrew Sluminski. Until next time, take good care of yourself and one another.